Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by LitBreaker.com. LitBreaker, it's an online ad network for culture vultures, for book nerds, for movie nerds, for art nerds, for photography nerds, for people who know what's going on in culture, people who are uh, smart, influential, educated, people who have money, people you want to advertise to if you are trying to sell product. Are you trying to sell a book? Are you trying to sell a movie? Are you trying to kickstart something? What are you doing out there? Go to LitBreaker.com. And you can advertise on a variety of terrific culture sites all at once, including The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, The Believer. Uh, the list goes on. You can do it in bulk. You can advertise on all of them at once. You can do it piecemeal and pick the sites that you want. It's very user-friendly. Check it out, litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for nerds. Go and check it out. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is how I make no money. This is not a substitute for actually writing. How's it going out there? Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. And uh, I've got a great show for you today. My guest is Eric Obanoff. He is the co-founder and uh, editorial director of $2 Radio, a terrific independent press based in Ohio. Uh, some of the books on the imprint include... Uh, the Orange Eats Creeps by Grace Kurlanovich, The Drop Edge of Yonder by uh, Rudolf Wurlitzer, and The Caveman by Joe DeJau. It's uh, it's great to to finally have Eric on this program. I've been itching to talk to him. I've had plenty of his authors on the show, and uh, now he is here. And uh, the two of us will be in conversation momentarily. Uh, before I get started with that, I do have uh, quite a bit of mail to get to. I, uh, I got a lot of feedback after the previous show, episode 312. Uh, as uh, some of you may know, I read some uh, critical letters from some listeners, uh, the lengthier and more comprehensive of which was written by a listener named Lauren Euler, who, uh, from what I gather, is now in charge of uh, Book Slut, having assumed the reins from uh, Jessica Crispin. I hope I'm getting that right. So Lauren is, uh, is the Book Slut. Uh, editor now. And uh, she wrote me 
a lengthy podcast, a lengthy uh, letter. She's a longtime listener, and the letter was critical. And if you want to hear, uh, you know, most of her letter, you can listen to the monologue for episode three twelve, or you can read her email in its entirety. She published it in full on the Bookslut blog. <laughs> uh, and I've also tweeted or retweeted a link to that email uh, from the other people Twitter feed if you want to track it down that way. So to give a broad overview, basically Lauren. Uh, as a longtime listener, is concerned that the podcast might be uh, sucking or beginning to suck or losing its way. And uh, in particular, she criticized my tendency uh, to talk about myself during interviews. And she also made a point of noting that she doesn't really listen to the monologues. And uh, the other the other criticism that I received was from an, another listener uh, named Brent, who was criticizing my use of the word retarded in a derogatory context. Uh, I was criticizing the NFL, and I called it retarded. I called the behavior of the NFL retarded. And then uh, I heard from Brent, who thought that that was an insensitive usage. So those were the letters, and uh, I read them on the show, and I uh, tried to respond. And then many of you out there heard it and uh, wrote me with your own thoughts. So I figured it's only fair to read a few of those. So uh, first, uh, first one uh, is from Twitter. I heard from a gentleman uh, named Luis. His handle is at electric serial. He characterized Lauren uh, Euler's email as, quote, funny. He found it funny, uh, which it was. She, she wrote with some wit, you know. And then uh, another uh, young woman named Jen. I'm assuming she's a young woman. She wrote me a very short, very cryptic email. Or not very cryptic, but somewhat cryptic. Uh, and the email said, quote, I love the show, but please listen to Lauren. I don't know how to feel. Uh, and then uh, I heard from Scott McClanahan and Juliet uh, Escoria, the recently uh, the recently married Scott McClanahan and Juliet Escoria, very fine writers, both of whom who have been uh, on this program before. And uh, they wrote me a note that reads, Hi, Brad, just wanted to let you know that we really love your podcast. It's been something that we've both been listening to for years now. The best part about the podcast is you. It's one of those great, rare things like the Mellow Pages Library that gathers up everything that's happening in a really nice way. So those other people can suck it. You're great. High five. So thanks to uh, Scott and Juliet for uh, the support. And then a listener named Jacob writes, uh, Brad, I'm drunk in the woods in a small community, <laughs> in a small community in Northern Georgia, right outside the quote, former chicken capital of the world. Just using my last cell phone battery breath to let you know that I think the show is fucking good. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> uh, a listener named Alex writes, Dear Brad, thanks for doing the show and for taking the time to publicly air criticisms of the show. I fall sort of in the middle when it comes to both of the letters that you read uh, in the last episode, number 312, uh, the one about the word retarded and the one by Lauren Euler. Uh, I'm kind of like you in that way. I tend to waffle when it comes to knowing how to feel about things. I won't go into too much further detail because I think you understand what your critics were getting at, while at the same time understanding that some of what they were criticizing is unavoidable, meaning talking about yourself on the show or misusing a word in conversation. Personally, uh, I go back and forth. I sometimes agree with your critics, and I sometimes like hearing about you. So I guess what I'm saying <laughs> is that I'll keep listening, and I trust that you'll find the right balance most of the time. Thanks again, Alex. So thank you, Alex. I'm, I'm going to do my best. I can assure you. Uh, another letter, this one from a listener named Suhail. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Suhail, Suhail, uh, uh, writes, Brad, I'm writing to tell you that whoever thinks your monologues are excessive is useless. 
They should have kept that thought to themselves. After all, it's your show, and we're listening because you've managed to create something great of unique value that affects listeners in a positive way. It's your house, man. If you want to monologue, you monologue, damn it. <laughs> Keep doing what you do. It's your house. Signed, Sue Hale. So thank you. And, you know, I don't know if they were saying, if uh, Lauren in particular was saying that my monologues are uh, useless. I think she was just saying they're useless to her. Which, I don't know, maybe that's the same thing. She was just saying she doesn't listen to them. Uh, And then a writer named David says, Hi, Brad. I just want to say that I think what you do with the podcast is really, really good and important. In my view, it is art. You're making good art. Talking on, the, uh, talking on the air, off the cuff like you do, and making that interesting to people is something I find incredibly intimidating and difficult to pull off, and you do it in a way that seems natural. I also appreciate your ability and willingness to accept the Internet outrage that comes your way over some of the things you say. I think being on the receiving end of outrage is the inevitable byproduct of voicing opinions on the Internet. Some people want to be outraged, and people on the Internet can indulge this desire all day, every day. I like... That you're not often outraged, and when you are a bit outraged, you do so in a pretty even-handed way and end up debating both sides of the issue with yourself, which is a trait I tend to trust in a person. One more thing. I especially enjoy the monologues. In my opinion, they are often one of the best things about the show. We all talk about ourselves as a way to relate to others. This is what people do. I've always found that you talk about yourself in a way that is entertaining and self-effacing. You exercise a good deal of humility. If people get upset hearing you repeat yourself about hiking the Appalachian Trail... I think that what they're upset about is something else going on in their own lives, which is also coincidentally what most internet rage is all about. Sorry to go on for so long. Sincerely, David. So thanks, David, uh, for offering thoughts and for uh, liking the show. I appreciate it. Uh, You know, outrage might be too strong of a word for the criticisms I got. I didn't feel like that. I don't feel like Lauren uh, and uh, Brent, the guy who wrote in, I don't feel like they were outraged. I feel like they were concerned. It's like, it's almost better. It's the best kind of criticism because I think it's coming from listeners who actually like genuinely care about the show as opposed to just like somebody who's trolling. So I do need to make that distinction and defend them a little bit. Uh, And then finally, uh, a listener named Garth writes, Dear Brad, I'm a longtime listener and I listen to a ton of podcasts. What I find about podcasts is that eventually I grow tired of a show and need to try something else for a while before coming back. This isn't a criticism per se. It's just an observation. And I imagine it's how many people listen to podcasts. It seems possible that the woman who wrote in criticizing just needs to find some other shows so that she doesn't get too fixated or something. Anyway, just my two cents. Thanks for doing the podcast, Garth. So I hope that wasn't overindulgent to read all that. I just, I get these letters and uh, I feel an obligation um, to share as many of them as I can. And I think in particular, because this, you know, this last episode and these last couple of letters generated so much feedback, you know, I thought I would air it all. So naturally, uh, like I, like I always say, uh, the criticisms seem very true to me. The, the compliments while greatly appreciated, uh, seem like they are meant for someone else. <laughs> That's just how I'm wired. So, um, that, you know, there's even more. And uh, I apologize to anyone if I didn't uh, get to your letter and didn't read it here on the air, I will try to respond in writing, and uh, I, I want you to know how much I, uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to write in. Um, so uh, on an unrelated note, or semi-related note, I did get an email from a listener who had a technology question about the show, and I want to address it. Uh, this person was wondering, how do you download episodes of this program online? 
you know, at otherppl.com, the show's main website, you can listen to the show, but you can't actually download from that particular site. So, uh, you know, you can, you can get the show on iTunes for free. That's the easiest way. You can get the, the app, which is the best way, the Other People app. You can get that for free anywhere that apps are available and the shows will just be right there on your device. But if for some reason you want to download directly from the internet, uh, you just go to otherpeoplepod.libsyn.com. That's Other People Pod. You spell it out the traditional way, O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E, pod, dot, Libsyn, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N.com. Otherpeoplepod.libsyn.com. That's where you download straight from the internet. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest, once again, is Eric Obanoff. He is the editorial director of $2 Radio, uh, one of this country's finest independent presses. And uh, it was a great pleasure getting a chance to speak with him. And uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from him. So here he is, folks. This is Eric Obanoff of $2 Radio. We live in Columbus, Ohio, uh, capital of Ohio, center of the state, heart of it all. Um, I am in my house. I work most days from our house, um, which is really nice, a nice luxury to have. Um, and so I'm sitting at my dining room table in my house in Columbus, Ohio. So, yeah, and this is, uh, and what, you're a decade old now at $2 Radio? Yeah, next year uh, is our 10-year anniversary, 2015, 10 years of $2 Radio. So Okay, and you guys have had real success. I mean, I think it's like a... I like the, what I mean, there's obviously a, a million independent presses. Anybody can start one, but you guys seem to be um, playing to win, like for lack of a better way of putting it. You've really developed a distinct brand. You've really done a great job. Kind of soup to nuts, you know, I, I feel like in terms of, um, you know, the taste that you guys have demonstrated in terms of which authors and which books you publish, um, the design, you know, the aesthetic of the books is distinct and, and sort of. Uh, uh, identifiable, you know, you can kind of tell when it's a $2 radio book. So, uh, you know, how did you have the, the vision to do this in 2005? I guess we start at the beginning and then we work into how it all, um, materialized. Well, there, there were definitely a bunch of hiccups, but I, I appreciate you noticing that. Um, it's something we've been cognizant of from, from the beginning, just trying to come up with a very consistent brand. Uh, initially, you know, we didn't, do the books with the uh, the gatefold and uh, the rough front, the deckle edge, um, and then that's something that we we've, we've started doing like the last four years or so. 
Well, and, and, I, and just to interrupt, like I feel like the – what did you call it? The gatefold and the deckled edge? Yeah. Those are sort of signifiers of like serious literature, I feel like. When I see a book <laughs> like that – I mean, I, am, am I wrong? Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that means the publisher is taking the book more seriously or it's some sort of visual cue to the reader that like this is some good serious shit. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. Um, it's something that I just like in terms of my own reading habits, like something that I am drawn to appreciating, you know, the aesthetics and like the tactile nature of a book. Um, like, why not make it look as good as you can? Uh, but also, too, you know, like our distributor points out every so often that, you know, you get people who order the book online and they might, they say, you know, the, the, the printer didn't even cut the edges, edges of the book off. So, you know. Some people definitely don't like it, but the uh, in terms of like the brand aesthetic, it's something we've tried to pay attention to all along. Uh, you know, I started the company with my wife and my brother uh, when we were living in San Diego ten years ago, and um, Eliza, my wife, and Brian, my brother, were both. You know, my brother worked in marketing and uh, media planning for a large corporation, and. Uh, it's a good guy to have as a, as like an advisor when you're right. starting a small company. Yeah, and um, and and Eliza's you know worked in graphic design and stuff like that too for a while doing uh, you know, design and advertising for companies. So you know having the two of them, I think Eliza in particular was like we we just launched a new website and when we you know because it's our own company, we just call ourselves whatever we want. And uh, so Eliza's job title now is like director of brand. Um, so it's it's something she's definitely steered. Uh, I I we we made a conscious decision to have the books all be the same size. Uh, we wanted them to look good on a shelf next to one another. Um, and then you know placement of the it, it was kind of you know we were looking at some of the presses uh, like Black Sparrow Press back in the day and the old Grove Press. Uh, they used to, you know, do a similar thing like Europa does it nowadays too, where it's like, you know, instantly recognizable when you see their book, you know, who's behind it. Right. Um, and so you, you brand, you build that affinity, I guess, with the, um, with the books that that publisher put out. So, and, and in terms of like the point of Genesis, like I'm imagining because this is something that kind of started on a shoestring, um, and as a family affair that it just was an outgrowth of conversations you were having in your early 20s? Yeah, I don't know. I think that we've always been really like reckless and aggressive in how we went about things, uh, just in terms of that point in our lives. Uh, at, at the time, you know, so 10 years ago, I, I would have been 23, and Eliza, Eliza would have been 24, 25, and we were living in San Diego, and it, it just seemed like, I don't know, why not do something like this? Uh, so we didn't have you know, the, the, the things tying us down, you know, like a mortgage payment or kids at that point. And, um, you know, another really big thing. So we, you know, it, it was probably like a really short conversation. It wasn't something that we put a ton of thought into. And then when <laughs> we decided to do it, then we actually just, we were already committed to it. And here we are 10 years later. Wow. Okay. And so like startup cash, like, did you have like a pile of money to start with or did you Oh no! I we no, we definitely did not have a pile of money. We had the opposite of that. There was a pretty depressing moment where you know we've been building up, um, where we fe we felt that we had like a really strong crop of books coming out, and so we made a, a push to be accepted by uh, a larger distributor, 
and we were accepted. Thankfully, we were really excited about that. And I remember we took our daughter, Eliza and I took our daughter out for ice cream and we were sitting in at the outside the coffee or the ice cream parlor and we were we were both kind of like we were both kind of giddy like thrilled at the thing and then all of a sudden we just got super depressed because we both realized that you know we didn't have any money like how are we gonna publish five books even if they're like the best five books ever how you can't publish five books in a year without any kind of money so so did you like take your daughter's ice cream cone and throw it away at that point like, yeah yeah yeah, yeah we're like, like, this goes to the highest bidder yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah sell the ice cream yeah so, so no but that 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 was that was really good in a sense too because we had a year in 07 before we started with the distributor where we had to sit down and say like try and figure out Exact. That was when we sort of became a business, where we had to sit down and say financially, how are we going to make this work? Right. You had to do math. We had to do math, yeah. Always. And then, you know, you know we reached a, a milestone, I guess, in the last year or two, which was really nice, where, you know, we have the Excel budget. And um, so I, I felt like this was a, a big thing for us, a big hurdle we had just overcome, where Excel finally stopped trying to autocorrect any positive number i was putting into the budget <laughs> so you're in the black <laughs> yeah 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 we're, i mean we're making money not much money but we're making you're making some money yeah well but hey that's a feat in independent publishing it's a feat in publishing period it's like i think i think uh for people who are new to the business or who don't engage with that side of it very much uh intellectually it, it can be something of a surprise to learn how difficult it can be uh to make money with books like even the bigs you know like uh, when you look at the success rate, particularly in like literary fiction and nonfiction, it can be sort of a shock when you hear stories and hear numbers. Oh yeah, yeah. Once you get down to the uh, the gritty details of everything, like what goes behind it, there are books you know where it's like they're a New York Times bestseller for 15 weeks, but you probably think like they have to be a New York Times bestseller for 15 weeks if they even want to, you know break even on that book right right and that the thing too is like trying to parse what that means you know like what does what does a new york times bestseller mean to sales um i i would even ask you i'm not even sure i know like how many books are selling if you're number 15 on the new york times bestseller list you know i the, for me that would be pure speculation because we yeah. have never come anywhere near that but i feel as though someone told me in the past that it was something like five thousand copies in in the region in, in a week yeah but, you know, I'm, which is I'm, pretty low. Like, I mean, especially when you compare it to um, more mainstream media, like viewership numbers or box office, you're like 5,000 books. Like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, so, OK, but like just to dial back a little bit, because I think it's interesting to talk about, um, you know, a the, the, the like, as you put it, the reckless nature of the company's genesis, which I think is, uh, you know, reckless, I say, um, somewhat in jest because it's you got to have some balls to start a business and you have to be willing to make the leap and you're not going to know all the answers and that's normal um and i you know, think some people shy away from that because of life circumstances or because they're afraid or whatever but you guys did it and the other part of it that i think um i'd like to hear you talk about is understanding the business environment back in 2005 and having some foresight because you guys did um you know, and, and that was really the time. I remember 2005, um, you know, and, and how things were looking. I had some of the same senses that you did. Um, I think a lot of people did, but, you know, not everybody and certainly not everybody in publishing. Uh, so, you know, talk about that a little bit. Like, did you, how did you get 
your sense that um, now was a good time to become an independent press or an independent media company as you're, you're now growing in other directions? Well, I think for us, you know, at the time it was just being young and idealistic. And if it didn't happen in 05, you know, it might have just happened a couple years later. I think that what was really interesting in terms of starting out was that, you know, we so we got accepted for distribution uh, with Consortium. Um, and so we started in 08 and we released two books in the spring uh, that did really well for us. Uh, one was The Drop Edge of Yonder by Rudolf Wurlitzer, and the second was 1940 by Jane Nugaborn. So what, is and, it, what does it mean when you say they did really well? Like critically, critical acclaim, like book sales, both? Yeah, both. I mean, so both sold over 3,000 copies in, uh, in, in that first year. I mean, for those to be our first two uh, our substantially selling books uh was was really great for us but at the time too in the spring we were like oh shit you know this is gonna be a cakewalk and then in the fall you know when the bottom fell out of the market and everything and people stopped buying books and buying uh, buying anything buying anything yeah and so i think that that was a real reality check like a real gut check but at the time too it was really fortunate for us not to be in a place where we had just you know rented office space or hired someone part-time to work with us. Like we weren't, we, we still have never paid ourselves a dime working on the company. And at the time, I think that was really fortunate um, that we didn't have any expectations. Like we need to do make X, X amount of money a month, you know, in order for us to survive, we were making money elsewhere. And so that enabled us to be really lean for the next uh, three or four years while things sorted themselves out, you know, in the market somewhat. Yeah. And it, it, it forced us too to find a way to make a profit publishing a book that would still only sell a thousand copies um, as opposed to, you know, 3000 copies. Right. Well, and you know, and like, that's like 3000 copies for an indie press, especially one in its, uh, in its early years is a feat. And, People don't realize that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think we realized it either at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. So, um, when you you start the press, you you raise up your flag on the internet, and then you put out a call for submissions. I mean, did you have um, con- you know con- connections? You you were in San Diego, but you had lived in New York and had gone to NYU, correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, well, actually, what happened was I found an old issue of Punk Planet. Um, and they had a theme issue called the Revenge of Print, and they had, you know, they did, they did a, a follow up to that, the Revenge of Print too. But at the time, I think this was oh five oh six maybe, and so the issue itself was a couple years old. I don't even know where I found this, um, and so I was reading it, and I found an article by Johnny Temple, uh, where he was just saying, you know, that and, and Johnny Temple is the uh, publisher of Akashic. Right, yeah, yeah, sorry. And uh, so Johnny wrote this piece for Punk Planet saying that, you know, they get more quality submissions than they could ever possibly publish themselves. And now's a great time to start a press. It's affordable to print books, et cetera, et cetera. If you're, you know, if you're, start- if you're interested in starting a press and you're looking for submissions, to drop him an email. And the email was in there. So I just wrote him an email, and 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 then uh, and he helped us get some some really quality stuff early on, early on. Wow, that's fortuitous. And then there was another book you read regarding the business of publishing, and forgive me for blanking on it, but um, 
Do you remember? <laughs> it had a really creative title, The Business of Books. Okay, that's what it was. And, yeah, yeah it, it was by Andre Schifrin, who, who just passed away earlier this year, uh, who was the publisher of Pantheon for a bunch of years uh, before uh, Pantheon was bought, acquired by Random House and then he was kind of squeezed out. But at the time, it was pretty interesting you know, because there were people like Studs Terkel and Kurt Vonnegut who were protesting uh, Schifrin's ousting from uh, Pantheon at the time. Um, I mean, he was just part of that old guard, I guess, where they believed that uh, literature you know, served an important place in culture. Um, and I think the whole mindset was, was flipped a little bit uh, you know, when corporations you know, started acquiring uh, you know, large houses and the, the various imprints um, to round out their lists. Uh, where, you know, as opposed to publishing books to sort of influence or inspire culture in some way, they started thinking about ways that culture could inspire or influence literature. Um, you know, so they started looking at books like assets, I guess. And it, it um, so Schifrin was part of that, that old guard. And, uh, and so his book was just, just chronicled his experience at Pantheon from, you know, the 50s and 60s up through. 90s. What did you learn from it? Like, what were some key takeaways as you started your own little imprint? Well, I, <laughs> they, I mean, there, there were a lot. I spent a lot of time underlining, you know, passages from the book and quoting from it and stuff. And Eliza and I both read it. And, you know, after I did, I was really inspired. Um, you know, I felt as though I really wanted to do something and I was more committed than ever. And Eliza finished reading it and she's like, this means we're never going to make any money like ever doing this. (laughs) So, so yeah, so we had different experiences, but the, um, Eliza sounds like a realist. (laughs) Oh yes. But you know, balance one another out. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have, I think there's a, yeah. And it's a good balance. You, I, cause like I, uh, I think I tend more towards idealism. Yeah, me too. My mind, my mind can take off on me. And, uh, but you know, I think the world needs some idealists and it needs, it's kind of more, uh, you know, realist minds yeah it helps to have them both in the room at the same time otherwise you just you know get carried away one way or the other yeah so okay so you read this book that's part of the you know what inspires you you're in san diego after leaving new york uh and i imagine it was just like hey we're young let's go move somewhere sunny near the beach was that it or was it more than that that was exactly it okay and then now and then it was back to ohio to columbus um, you know, where you guys currently are and continue to run the business and which I imagine has a much more affordable cost of living scenario, which I'm sure helps you, you know, do $2 radio stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we could never afford the home that we have here in, in Los Angeles or something. And also too, I mean, uh, the, the city itself is, is pretty cool because it feels as though there's a lot of potential here for it to grow uh, there's cool festivals every weekend, um, and there's a sense that if you wanted, if you got a group of people together and like wanted to start something, like open a bookstore, that it's like fertile ground to do something like that. As opposed to, I think being in in places where we lived before, like New York, especially where there's you know a bunch of really fantastic bookstores. Like if you want to open a bookstore, like what? is the purpose that what are you going to offer in your store that no one else is offering? And do you have like a half a million dollars to like just start it? Like if, yeah. If not more. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that Columbus is, is great for that reason. Um, it, it makes us, you know, it lets people, I guess, 
uh, take off with their ideas. Yeah, I've been reading about Pittsburgh lately. Like Pittsburgh's supposed to be like the this up and coming environment, and you know it, it, it does get a little tiring. I, can, I speak from experience living in a one of the bigs, you know, like Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco. Like the cost of living is just so out of hand, and especially when it comes to housing. Uh, you know, you're looking at a very high median home price, which can be uh, depressing to even contemplate, especially if you work in a business like publishing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. So, okay, so you moved back to Ohio. Um, you had lived in New York. While you were in New York at NYU, did you, um, did, you know, you were studying, what, dramatic writing? Yeah, exactly. So that, what does that entail? Like writing screenplays and plays. Okay. So you're doing that. Are you making literary contacts there that later went on to help you out or no? No. Um, at the time, I was interning with The Daily Show uh, with Jon Stewart. And, you know, that, that opened my eyes up to the whole, you know, Hollywood TV thing. And, you know, it made me realize that I didn't necessarily want to go in that direction either. Why? Oh, uh, uh, just... You know, I think that I was a little too eager to try to make something happen. Like, there was definitely the cold, hard reality that if you wanted to, you know, write a joke for the show, it would be like five to seven years before you'd hear one on the air. Um, and I, I guess I was a little too restless for that. Um, what, was, it, what was it? I mean, was it a, a healthy environment when you were there as an intern? Like, did you look around and be like, these people are happy? Or was it like, uh, oh, my God, everyone's miserable, <laughs> even though they're working on this great show? I think I think people were generally happy and excited, um, and then also it was probably like something really. I mean, for me too, it was something really nice to say to my parents that I was doing. Um, but you know, after graduating, like I couldn't afford to, to you know, uh, to live in the city while work. You know, being an assistant production assistant or something silly like that. Right. Um, like that's just not something. That's not realistic. Uh, so then when we moved to uh, San Diego, I guess I got. At the time, too, I mean, all through college, I was getting more into uh, literature versus screen, uh, or like writing prose versus uh, screenplays and plays. And then when we got out west, um, I picked up that business of books thing. I was discovering all these imprints, uh, you know, uh, small presses like Soft Skull. And then at Akashic, they had this imprint that I really liked uh, where it was like their Urban Surreal series. Um, and they were just really kind of quirky, offbeat books um, that that were slightly surreal and mysterious. And then you know Dennis Cap- Cooper's Little House in the Bowery imprint. And so it was like a con- uh, a conflation of those different events, you know, happening at the same time and just being idealistic and eager to make something happen. And that was, I guess, how we ended up starting the company. And then in terms of like getting you know the initial titles off the ground. Um, you know, like take us a little bit through the nuts and bolts of the the business realities of it. You mentioned earlier getting the distribution deal with consortium. Um, you know, for an independent press, especially one as small as two dollar was back in you know what was it two thousand and eight. Um, you know, that's a big deal, and it's also uh, you know it, it requires you to do print runs versus doing print on demand, which is another option for indie presses where the margins are like wickedly narrow, but. Um, can, you, can you talk? Can you talk us through that a little bit? Because I'm sure people, um, you know, some people don't even understand any of that, and then others would probably benefit just from hearing you explain it. Yeah, well, so we initially pro- uh, applied for to be distributed by a bunch of different places, um, 
And just and, and just to and just to stop, like what what is a book distributor? They they get your books in the bookstore. Exactly. Yeah, they're the ones who like go you know store to store and say like this is why you should take this book. It's special because you know you should think about putting it on the window. If you like this, you probably like this. And you know, so it makes a really big difference. And um, so the first couple years, uh, we had a, a small press distributor, and then we had acquired enough titles where we felt pretty confident that it was time for us to, you know, take the next step and get a, uh, a distributor with a little more muscle and, I guess, uh, credibility, I guess, in the, in the, with bookstores in the marketplace. And so we had uh, five books um, signed at that point, and we were, and then when we applied with them, they, they took us on, and, you know, so then we ended up having to push everything back in order to work with them uh, by a year or two. I think it's still kind of weird the way that the the selling period is set up for distributors, which seems to benefit more the really the large corporate pes- presses versus the how, wait, how, how so? Well, just in terms of the long lead times, and if you don't have that, if you don't have a bunch of enough money to be acquiring books for a year, you know, eighteen months to two years from now, um, the only people that that have the the finances and the resources to do that are the large corporate presses. So they, you know, have that. Ex- so for a small press, it might be like a, more of like a 12 month window um, where you have the money coming in to sort of like put it back out and acquire new books, new manuscripts. Um, so by cutting out that extra six months to, you know, six to 12 months, uh, you know, that's time that you, that the larger presses have to, you know, iron out all the wrinkles to copy edit, to uh, you know, print galleys to get blurbs to get those out to booksellers to start building a buzz, um, and then you know, distribute the book uh, to get it into stores and on the shelves and reviewed in the right places. Um, you know, and but for for smaller presses, that can be really hard to do to meet those schedules. Sure. And then what about production? You know, like you guys, you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, that like the, the three principals in the company each have kind of a skill set that fills a, you know, fills a need um, and works in complement to the others. But, uh, you know, when it comes to you, you get a manuscript from an author, you decide to take them on, um, you know, who's doing the, uh, the editing, who's doing the copy editing, who's doing the design, like how does that all go down? So my brother was initially involved in the company more regularly uh, when we first started out, and then in the past couple years, he's kind of stepped back. Uh, but so, what happens in terms of when we acquire a new project? I am the one who reads the submission, and um, and then you know, I, I ideally once I fall in love with that, then I, I draft a letter saying exactly what I plan on working with, any of the larger edits that I think that we'll have to focus on, any trouble areas. Uh, just in hopes of, um, you know, just to ensure that we're on the, that I'm on the same page as the author and the vision that they have for the work, um, and uh, I think that 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 helps out too. Just because uh, ideally they say, oh yeah, this is you know definitely on the right path. So then we take it on, and um, and so then I work on more of the larger narrative edits, uh, characters, stories, etc. And we go through like two or three drafts there. Uh, Is that your dog? 
That's my dog. Okay, yeah. I don't know. If I was yeah, it didn't sound like mine. So, <laughs> um, but so like when you talk about uh, editing, you know, are you pretty heavy-handed? Like, do you do a lot of cutting and redlining? Or are you pretty gentle? I mean, editors have different styles, you know. I guess, and I guess each project de- demands different stuff. But. Sure. I mean, there's. I mean, the most heavy-handed I've ever been is when I suggested that we cut out a hundred page, the last like essentially hundred pages from a manuscript. And that was something where I really, you know, like I wanted to talk to the author on the phone before I, you know, before we went forward with anything, just to make sure that that was actually okay. Right. Um, because that, that's something that's, yeah, it's really heavy. handed. Um, and there was a little awkward moment, I guess, when, cause that one came through an agent and I was talking to the agent on the phone first and I was, you know, kind of saying exactly what I wanted to do. And there was an awkward pause, and she was like, well, actually, I kind of encouraged her to include that in the manuscript so that, I don't know. Basically, <laughs> it, it was at her encouragement that the author included that. Did it, get, guess, did it get cut out? Yeah, it got cut out. All right. So it, it all worked out okay. You're like, yeah, I triumphed. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and the book was well-received, too, so I feel good about that. Um, but the, I guess... I work on more of the larger narrative edits. Um, I I can be heavy-handed like that, and there are other times where I'm I'm definitely not. Uh, Eliza, you know, is the one who goes through the manuscript with the fine-tooth comb and copy edits it, and really picks up on anything that I missed. Um, she's with- good, and she's she's really. I mean, she's got grammar completely nailed. I'm I'm like I'm completely amazed by copy editors. Yeah, yeah, she's she's great, and uh, you know, she's got. She's really organized, and she has this whole set, you know, Excel documents of house styles and things like that. So it's nice that I don't have to worry about that, and I get carried away with my daydreaming. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome to have somebody who has that skill set. And then uh, in terms of, um, you know, the editing process, you know, like you talked about sometimes being heavy-handed or sometimes, you know, suggesting fairly large moves. It seems to me more and more, or when I talk to, to people, that, most most publishing houses won't take a book on if they feel like it needs a lot of editorial. They sort of want as close to a finished product as possible, which I guess makes sense. But it, it sort of begs the question: like, well, what's an editor for? You know, if you're going right. to help the author try to realize it, and um, you know, puts a lot of the onus on the author. It, like, is, it, do you feel you differ from you know the uh, the average uh, publisher in this way? Well. You know, I don't know how anyone else does it. You know, like, I don't know how they operate. So I guess, you know, I, I'm not afraid to take something on that needs a substantial amount of work. Um, for instance, we're publishing a book this fall uh, called The Absolution of Roberto Achestes Lang. That was my Spanish accent. <laughs> by uh, Nicholas Rambes. And when it initially came to us, it was a, um, a, show, a story collection. And I sort of have an aversion to story collections. And so we started talking about developing this character, this like rare film librarian. And then Nick ended up, so that story collection was like 80, 90 pages. He ended up writing an entire, uh, I'd say like 60, 70 more pages um, just to like flesh out that character. Uh, so the nature of the story changed a good amount. But at the same time, too, I wasn't saying like, you need to do this. Um, it was something that I, I think that he had there that I was just prodding him to bring it out and develop it more. But um, yeah, but I mean, significantly involved in creatively reshaping the work. Yeah, I mean, I don't, 
And and whenever I suggest something too, I always make a point of not saying like this person needs to die here or something like that. <laughs> Just like sort of I always try to preface my note by saying this is a suggestion, you don't have to do this, but something along these lines and then I try to throw out a couple ideas. And inevitably what what ends up happening is the writer, you know, that triggers something in them and then they come up with an idea that's entirely their own. Which that, is nice. Yeah, me. but I mean, no, it's like you, you prod, you know, sometimes that's all it takes. I feel like uh, increasingly in my life, I, in my creative life, I feel like uh, just having, you know, real constructive dialogue uh, with someone who actually is, is intellectually invested because that's a hard thing to get. You know, when you're writing something, especially something that's long form, um, you, you know, and then you hand it to somebody. A, do they have the time? B, do they have um, the level of energy and attention that it requires to give constructive feedback? But if you can get your hands on that, I feel like creatively those kinds of conversations uh, can be so huge. Even if they don't lead to the answer, they might ask the right question that eventually does. Right, yeah, exactly. It just triggers something in you, you know, in, in the way of thinking. And what seems to happen to me, too, on things that I've worked on is when someone starts asking that question, like, there's that voice in the back of your head that while you're working on it, you maybe ignored it or whatever, but it touches on something that was initially there, maybe, that you've been putting off addressing or confronting. Well, yeah, and I think, too, like, uh, editorially, like, whenever I've been in, uh, like, on either side of the desk or whenever I've been in, like, a, a writing workshop, it often seems to me that the, the best notes are super self-evident. Like, someone gives you a good editorial note, and it's like, holy shit, how did I not see that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you feel like they're saving you from yourself, you know, and, and really making the thing better. Uh, and what, you know, um, by the same token, like, what really frustrates me is when somebody makes an editorial critique... Um, but doesn't justify it with a why, you know, doesn't give you any kind of explanation with any kind of logic involved. It's just sort of an opinion, uh, that can get frustrating. You know, do you, are you sensitive to that when you're trying to, uh, compose your thoughts about a work to an author? Well, with my background being a writer, I'm definitely, yeah, very sensitive to that. I think with, you know, I always joke with Eliza too, cause she, you know, writes out her notes and I was like, you have to tone this down. Like they're going to read that and think that you're like, just, I don't know, being really negative when, when she's not, it's just like the way she's talking or whatever that she's putting in it, like in a, put in a comment box on word that could just, you know, you could read it entirely differently. Yeah. Well, tone is important. And, but to me, it's like, I don't care if someone's really negative. It's just like, be negative, but then justify it. Like, show me your logic. And if, you're, you know, if your logic is good, I'll probably agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So do you guys pay advances at this point? Yeah, we do. We always have. Um, and we've, yeah, so we do pay in advance. And um, yeah, we do. So then once we take on a manuscript then you know initially my one of my first questions is you know do you have any ideas for how the cover could look and then they send us over something you know like uh covers for other books or movies or images from movies that they were attracted to or looked at while they were working on the project and then we try to riff off of that when we come up with the design but all our designs are done in-house by by myself oh wow you're a good designer dude you got some talent Thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, I haven't done all of them. Um, there's, uh, you know, we've been really fortunate to get some pretty top-notch artists to, to do our 
covers in the past, like Barbara Kruger did one. Um, this artist, Aubrey Perry, Matt Brinkman, um, Ricardo Cobolo. Uh, so we have been really fortunate to work with some really nice people who've given us access to their work, either for free or really affordably. Um, but yeah, so then we work on the cut, co- but most of the covers, I guess we do in house. I start out and do it and then Eliza refines it. Um, and then from there, you know, we print galleys, we do the publicity thing and I handle the publicity, uh, which I like too, because, you know, in being the one who acquires a manuscript, you know, I'm the one who has to go to bat for the book with review editors, with booksellers, um, with the sales team and stuff like that, where I think that there's, if you're at a larger place, there could be that detachment, um, you know, and it being passed on, you know, down the chain of command. Um, well, it's publicists. Publicists at the big houses often don't have time to read the books or inclination. I mean, and I, I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. So they're going out and trying to publicize something they haven't even read. That puts you at a disadvantage to a degree. Unless, unless, <laughs> unless maybe like not knowing, like maybe if you read it and didn't like it, it would be harder to lie about it, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you love, you sincerely love every book you're putting out. So you must be an effective publicist for that reason. Or, you know, that's part of the reason. I think so. I mean, that's something I mentioned as a sales handle for any writer that's thinking about signing up with us is that, that fact. Well, and it, but you know, let's talk about this part of it because I think in indie publishing, you know, acquisition is fun. Getting a great manuscript that you fall in love with working on the editorial can be fun and rewarding and the back and forth with the author, um, you know, copy editing. I don't know how fun that is, at least from my imagination of it, but you know, you're going through and you're cleaning it up and polishing it. You're doing the book design. You're getting the page layout done. But then you got to go out and you got to market this thing and publicize it and sell people on it. And that's the nitty-gritty work that I've found that, A, is a huge time suck. And then, B, it's a lot harder to get people to roll up their sleeves and do that than it is to do the other stuff. Right. You know, like finding someone to just go market your – I mean, you better be paying them or you better be doing it yourself. Um, because it's just, it can be thankless work. It's a lot of work in the phones. It's a lot of sending emails. It's a lot of keeping spreadsheets and staying organized. I mean, you tell me, is that an app, you know, an accurate description? Well, there, there is a, a, I do get a little satisfaction from doing the, the publicity work. Like it's not something that I absolutely love doing and independent publicists are just so expensive that, you know, I have a hard time you know, recommending to an author that they should hire someone. Um, so, you know, it's something that needs to be done, but at the same time, I don't mind it. Um, and you know, you can, it can be fun kind of coming up with new ideas for ways to people to send the book to like why you think they might like it. And, you know, writing a letter to someone you always admired, that you get a chance to tell them that and Say this is a book that we published that I hope you'll enjoy. So, what do you do for like your average title at two dollar? What do you what do you do for publicity? You got the book, um, you know, in galley. You're ready to go out and um, you know start trying to drum up. Like, take us through the process quickly. Well, you know, we, so we print we print the galleys and we send them out. We have a solid list, I guess, now of of media contacts and freelance writers, and then also booksellers. Um, it's, it is getting a little bit easier for us, I guess, where, uh, booksellers and, and, um, 
reviewers are, are writing to ask for, for stuff where before like we were really having to bang the drum about it. And then, you know, ideally you get the trade reviews that come out ahead of publication and then you can use those, you can use the, uh, so then once we have those out, then I start following up with the, re- the editors to say, you know, like this is something special. I hope you take a look at it. And then as things trickle in, new blurbs, reviews, just keep prodding and prodding until you get a yes or a no. And so, yeah, I mean, you must be, you have to stay organized. Do you have like, are you working off of spreadsheets? And No. No, you do, do you <laughs> just memory? <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of notes to myself on the backs of envelopes. Yeah, like I just, I've just found that like you send all these things out and then it's like, oh wait, who did I send it to? Like what was the last email? Like yeah. easy for, you know, my mind to get scrambled, but. Kudos to you for somehow keeping it together. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, and then what about, um, you know, the, the marketing of the book? Like, do you guys do advertising, or do you, is it word of mouth? Do you use social in some sort of unique way? We're trying to step up our social media game. We don't have any budget to do advertising. Uh, we spent a lot of the last year working on a new website, which just went live uh, in the last month and a half which we're really excited about. And we wanted the website to be a really friendly user experience um, so that people not familiar with the company already but who maybe heard something about us could just hop on the site and then find something that would interest them really quickly. Um, So we have uh, a feature that I'm really excited about is this uh, book recommendation quick search feature. So... You know, if you're a fan of Stephen King, you can hop onto the site and you can search for Stephen King and then you'll get a recommended book that we've published based off of that. Um, so it's, it's uh, hopefully it'll be easier for people who, like I said, are somewhat familiar, vaguely familiar with the company, but who want to find out more about us. That's a good idea for a publisher to do that. It doesn't seem like it would be the hardest thing to code, you know, if you just create a master list of authors and then... You know, yeah, it's just a lot of grunt work, is right. what it is. And uh, so, yeah, we're trying to do more with the website. We have the landing page on the website. We have uh, three features that are updated daily. One is a cliffhanger, like a little-known fact about something that we think is cool, like a book, a TV show, a movie, whatever. Um, like the one that we have today is about the origins of the the name of the the press, uh, Dorothy publishing project and um and then we have and then the second feature is a quote from something and then the third one is this death rattle of culture thing where we just kind of snidely poke fun at silly things happening in the world today so it's becoming more of a it's becoming like what more of an is it aggregating content from around the web or are you doing original content a lot of it is original I'd say most of it's original. I mean, but the 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 quote, you know, we just copy and paste that from somewhere. But the 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 cliffhanger fact thing, we're having to do a lot of research on and writing those things. But it's a way for us to, I guess, to promote things that we like and enjoy and that inspire us and are, are really cool that are happening out there. Like we've, you know, done, like I said, Dorothy, and then this yesterday was this book, four ninety one. It was published in the 60s by Grove Press and is out of print here. And uh, like Jag Jaguar, the record label, stuff like that, bands that we like, anything. 
So, and then and you you mentioned name origins earlier with uh, Dorothy and, and how like presses get their names. How did Two Dollar Radio get its name? When I was bartending in San Diego, uh, I was at this bar that was across the street from a harbor, and you know, so there are these grizzled fishermen who go out on their boat and you know go fishing, and they just get hammered, and they come into the bar like at noon or two o'clock in the afternoon, like as I'm setting stuff up for the night ahead. And they're already wasted. And so one of these guys came in, and I was doing my best to avoid him um, just because he was so out of it. And uh, and he knew that I was trying to avoid him. And he said, don't mind me. I make more noise than a $2 radio. So, <laughs> I wonder I wonder who he is. I, w- I wonder if he knows what he's inspired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, apparently $2 something, you can say, you know, like this is a $2 watch. It's a way to say like a cheap and expensive thing. Right. An expression. So, yeah. So that was that was where we came up with the name. We initially called it the Two Dollar Radio Movement because we, you know, having with a background in film and screenwriting, you know, I always kind of knew that we would want to expand into these other mediums eventually. Yeah, and I, I want to get to that. I, I, you know, I think. Uh, I mean, I guess we covered reviews with regard to the publishing um, component. You know, you guys have like you guys get reviewed by the New York Times. You know, that alone is a huge feat for an indie press and. Uh, I think that's a testament to the brand and also uh, your ability to make contacts. Like, just in that one instance, like, how did you get? How did you get to that point? What's that? To get a review in the New York Times? Yeah. What's the What's the angle well, there? Well, I think you know we had to not get reviewed in the New York Times for you know three or four years before that, and and be putting out quality stuff. I guess that would maybe catch their attention. But you know, if you're just you know friendly enough and you know you you're not annoying the people that you're trying to get cover your stuff then i think that you can do it in a tactful way so who, did you, who, did, who did, whose leg were you pulling on what do you mean at the new york times yeah who, who are you reaching out to well, so when we initially got distributed picked up by consortium uh in january 08 what we did was we went around to a bunch of review a bunch of in newspapers, magazines, and stuff in New York uh, for a week and just introduced ourselves, Eliza and myself did. Just say, this is who we are, this is what we're doing. Uh, I hope you pay attention. Um, and we went to places like Publishers Weekly and Book Forum and Entertainment Weekly and the New York Times. Um, and so, you know, like Sam Tannenhouse was nice enough to sit down with us when it was just, you know, two kids not really knowing what they're doing, uh, you know, asked to come in his office and like present their list to him. And, um, and you know, so he was really nice about it and he met with us for, you know, like five minutes or less than five minutes, but it was something like, you know, we kept sending books and, you know, emails as they came out. We've also been very intentional about how we schedule our books to release. Like we don't want to release like five books in the same month. We, you know, so we're not, you know, taxing anyone whose attention we're trying to get. So we try to do it, you know, either every other month or every third month where we release, release a new book. So you got Sam, you got a, you went, you scheduled meetings with all these places and they took you. You just called them up and said we want to come in. Yeah, yeah, I sent them an email. And that worked. There was, yeah, there was uh, Michael Greenberg who um, uh, had a couple of books published by the other press, and he was a columnist for uh, Times Literary Supplement. He. Um, I don't, know, he, I don't know how he heard about it. He's like, you should just, you should try to do this. And so we were like, all right, let's try to do this. And 80% of life is showing up, you know? <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. 
I mean, but that was in, in 08, and I don't think the Times reviewed one of our books until uh, 2011, 2012. So, yeah. we had, you know, we had to keep playing. There were, there were a lot of books that weren't reviewed by the New York Times before they. But that was when you started, like, seeding the field and, like, getting it ready. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Say, you know, that makes sense. That's, and that's exactly something that most indie publishers don't do. So yeah. if there's any press people out there listening wondering why their books aren't getting reviewed in the big um, newspapers or magazines or whatever, like that might be why. You guys actually showed up in New York and went and had face-to-face time with these people. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, it was definitely helpful. A lot of those contacts that we made on that initial trip have been really good to us. I mean, just not even like immediately afterwards, but in, in the following years afterwards. So how do people submit? Like, are you getting mostly agents coming at you now, or do people just email you out of the blue, authors directly? Everything. I mean, we used to have open submissions, and it was taking us, we were getting like 1,500 submissions a year, and the and I don't even think that's including agent submissions. So we just, we switched over to submittable, uh, and, and we do take unagent submissions. Um, but what we're doing is we're saying that you have to buy us a, cof- a cup of coffee if you want us to read your your book so we're charging people three dollars per submission (laughs) that seems doable yeah and the only reason we're doing that is just so that people can't send out like one blanket email to anyone with an email address online which i would say at least 25 percent of the submissions we were getting were um just carpet carpet bombing yeah absolutely so ideally this weeds some of that out and there are probably agents who are guilty of that too so we, you know, we even make agents go through submittable and pay three dollars, which well, and you know, see how they respond. To that agent agents in like the in like the indie press phase where they're just like, "Fuck it, I'll just send it to all these people," <laughs> most of whom can't pay advances. You know? yeah. well, there's a lot of really really good um, agent submissions that come to us that are first novels or something like that. But you can kind of tell that they've made the rounds of the big presses. Right. It's, it's, it's a big press book. It's not a $2 radio book. And that's something that we've always tried to stay faithful to is that, you know, anyone, I guess, <laughs> anyone can publish a book, you know, that, that, ha- that fits the Random House brand, I guess, with it being so broad. And, um, and so for us, with $2 radio, we tried to pick a specific type of, book and then stay true to that so that we're not just unnecessarily publishing something just because we can. Yes, okay, so what is a $2 radio book? Can you define it? Yeah, it has to be bold, dark, creative, um, has to be loud, too loud to ignore. Um, And then I think, you know, traits that I look for in, in manuscripts are just a strong voice and authority over the world that the author is creating. Um, you know, where there aren't really any of those hiccups where you, when you're reading the manuscript, you're like, oh, this, this is a little like half-baked or, you know, not entirely thought out. Um, so, I mean, I, we're trying not to tell the same story twice. Um, so I think that, you know, you could submit a book to us that is about a relationship between, you know, a boy and his aunt. And, you know, while uh, at face value, that might not be something that we gravitate towards. If it's told in the right manner, um, then that's something that we would, could, could really get into. So, and what's been your most successful title so far? Are you willing to, to say? Yeah, our best-selling book was The Orange Eats Creeps uh, by Grace Kirlanovich, which at the time might have been the lowest advance that I've ever paid, uh, just because I was so frightened that we'd 
we'd ever, you know, make any money off publishing because it was so bold and edgy. And, you know, I think for that time when it, we released it, which might have been 2010, it, it just really struck a nerve. And there were a lot of uh, websites like The Nervous Breakdown and HTML Giant who really got behind that book and rallied behind it. And it built up this just incredible buzz. And then it got she got picked by Grace Krilanovich, got picked by Scott Spencer as one of their five, uh, 535 honorees from the National Book Foundation. And then that, you know, just opened the door to a whole lot of other things, good things to happen. But it's still something. You mean, you mean press-wise? Press-wise, yeah. Okay. And, but I think, you know, also, too, one of the things that really helped was Steve Erickson was nice enough to write an introduction to that book and really put his neck on the line and say, like, this book is phenomenal and it's something special and you need to pay attention to it. Wow. And so I think it made it okay for people to, to rally behind the book. How, how did you get that? Steve? Well, so what happened was, through I, I'm a huge fan of Steve's work, and I um, got in touch with He's friendly with Scott Bradfield, who we published. And, um, and Bradfield brought him out to England where he teaches. And, uh, and so, you know, he kind of put us in touch. And I mentioned something to Steve. I was like, you know, if you ever feel like slumming it with us or have some, like, you know, even weirder story that you'd be looking to publish, you know, just let me know. And he's like, well, you know, I, it, things are going really well for me right now, blah, blah, blah. But you should ship my, one of my students just sent, sent you this manuscript that I think is, you know, something special and you need to pay attention to it. And I went back and I found Grace's submission and it was, you know, mentioned like vampire junkies and <laughs> And I remember when I first read it, I was like, oh, man, like, we're getting books about vampires now. <laughs> uh, so when I first, you know, read that, some, that query letter, you know, it, it didn't stand out to me. But, you know, having Steve's backing to say, like, something like, you should really look at this. Sure. Uh, I was like, all right, well, I should really look at this. And I, I did, and it was, it was wild. And I, and I love it. I'm really proud of, the, proud of that book and everything that's happened for Grace. That's great. So, and then, um, I guess like the, the next question would be, uh, regarding the, you know, the financial realities of the business and how you make it all work. Like you, you, uh, you do other stuff still. It's not like this is the only thing you're doing. Like you're doing other stuff to, to pay the bills. Yeah. I bartend three nights a week. Um, which is okay because we have two young kids and it gets me out of the house. Right. Around in the world of adults. <laughs> right. Yeah. Having grown up conversations and then, you know, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, fodder out there, I guess, for stories and, you know, ways to stay interested in things. Um, so it's good. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I don't necessarily – I'm excited to not have to work another job. One of the things where it can get really exhausting is when I have to stay up until – like, last night I closed the bar. I got home at, like, 2.30 and then getting up with my daughter to get her ready for school. Jesus, yeah. Uh, is pretty pretty rough. Sure. So I'm looking forward to that. Do you have yeah. a time? Do you have a timeline or like a goal set or anything like that? Like, can you can you see a day in the not too distant future when two dollar is you know your only show? Hopefully it'll be soon. I mean, this is the website and expanding into movies is something that has been a long time coming, but we've spent a lot of time this year. It's, I think in a lot of ways it's similar to that year that we took off before we started with consortium 
where we were doing putting in the where we were sort of doubling down on our investment. Um, last year was really good for us. We had three books that were really well received: Capalacia, uh, A Questionable Shape, and Miracopora. And um, and so th- this year, I guess you know, while we still have our our, our books coming out. We're spending time on the website. We're spending time behind the scenes so that next year will be something flashy, like for our big 10-year anniversary. We have the website done. Hopefully that'll take things to you know the next level. And then we'll be releasing our first movie next year. Yeah, so let's talk about this. You're a movie company. You're an independent filmmaker now as well as a publisher. So what's the genesis of that? Well... I guess, you know, there, there was a screenplay, well, you know, my background being, and it was always something that I was interested in doing. Um, it wasn't something that I thought was a reality until, um, last, like the spring of 2013. And I just realized I was talking about it to a lot of people in a way that, that I knew it was going to happen and that we may as well just do it right now. Um, so you know, we just went about trying to find the first projects that we really wanted to work on. Um, there was, you know, with the way that Barney Rossett did it back in the day where he was including people like doing short films by Samuel Beckett and Pinter. And, um, that seemed to me like the first step that we should take is to reach out to our authors that we already have, you know, positive relationships with and say, do you have any, you know, stories that you're looking that would adapt well to this form. And that was initially how we got in touch with Nicholas Rombase, um, where he wrote this really incredible script uh, for the removals. Um, and it's going to be directed by Grace Kralanovich. Uh, what we've, and so we plan on filming that early next year. And you have, uh, do you have gear? You have all the gear you need? We have most of the gear. So what we did this year was we had, I had a script that I had written uh, you know, over the course of the last, you know, three or four years that I was really attached to. And I, because of the dark subject matter, I knew it was something that if I ever wanted to see become a reality, that I would have to do it myself. Um, so what we did was we, we did the Indiegogo thing and we got enough money to essentially buy the camera, some of the sound equipment, that sort of thing. And what, then what, what, like what, what kind of camera you got? We got a Nikon seventy one hundred, um, so it's it's good. It, it it works well for us. Does it look like a Does it look like a still camera or does it look like a movie camera? It looks like a still camera. Okay, yeah, because that's it's the, a DSLR. Right. I mean that, but that's the thing people need to realize is that like the quality of these cameras these days um, with SLRs or like the what is it the Canon five D or like they shoot oh, yeah. they shoot incredible imagery. Yeah, they really do. I mean, the quality is really high. Uh, so what we did was we, I basically, you know, adapted the script to fit the personality of, of my friends and neighbors and family members. And then I made them all act in, in this movie that we spent, that we shot mostly this past spring. And this summer we've been working hard editing it and refining it. And I'd say we're, we're a little over 95% done with everything. We're just fine tuning the sound right now. Which is which is a really good feeling. Well, and it's a good movie. You feel good about it? I do. I mean, it's in in one sense, it was really hard to make. You know, just in the amount of 
effort and anxiety that just went into to producing the thing. And, uh, you know, I was having to wear every hat, um, you know, just making sure everyone was there on time, that they had rides, and then getting there and directing it and then rewriting the script. Um, we I had this, uh, there's a guy working with us, Mike Shiflett, who's uh, well-known as a noise musician, and he's also a talented cinematographer. Um, so he's been working with us on the movie side of things, and we use a lot of his his uh, noise music in the movie. It's it's really great, um, but it's shaping up nicely. It was, but then another sense I had as we were making the movie, I was like, you know what, like making movies is is hard. But like you were saying earlier, you just got to show up. If you want to make a movie, you can make a movie. Um, so we've almost made a movie. That's awesome. That's so great. I mean, what about distribution? Are you going to go like try to get into festivals? Are you going to just try to dig, you know digitally distribute or put it up on your site or? We are definitely going to try to go through uh, festivals, so we're planning on submitting to a bunch of them here in the next couple weeks. Um, the deadlines are coming up. And then also, um, but the model that we're following is the whole Louis C.K. indie game, the movie uh, distribution model, which uh, particularly the, the guys, uh, the group, the guy and gal who made indie game. Uh, Wait, what is indie game? Indie game, it follows indie game designers at different stages of development with their games. Um, and Louis through- C- and Louis C.K. is separate from that. Like, you, you just bundle them together as one. As like- yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay. I, yeah, I bundled the two together because they mentioned Louis C.K. as a big influence on their work and how he distributed his, uh, what, like, stand-up comedy special. Right, where he just, like, put it up online and said, five bucks, you're done. Right, yeah, yeah. So what, what indie game did... Uh, you know, they, they're like, we're going to try to go the whole festival around and get accepted in festivals, but also we're going to plan for not being accepted in any festivals. And, you know, so they tried to build themselves up as a brand. Um, and so that when they released their movie themselves, they would be, cre- I mean, they were, they were really creative publicists, I guess, you know, they got Adobe to sponsor their movie tour and things like that. Um, so they were pretty crafty about how they went about it. But that's sort of the model that we're trying to follow where, you know, ideally it gets into like a big festival and then we get a distribution deal and we don't have to have the anxiety of releasing it ourselves. But also we're planning for that not to happen. So. And then like long term, is this it? I mean, is it going to be movies, books? You do the nonfiction um, journal and then... Are you going to do it? I mean, are you going to start a record label? Like, what's next? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, right now, you know, I mean, we're definitely playing the long game. I think that, you know, I, I was never necessarily drawn to the publishing industry as, like, an industry that I wanted to be a part of, but more like the the whole record label model where they, do, they just follow their fancy. You know, if they wanted to produce a movie, they would produce a movie. Um, and that they didn't see that as a hindrance, that they were called a record label uh so there was like you know drag city and they released the harmony korean film trash humpers and then jag jaguar um so i think that's more the model that we're following uh but right now you know we definitely have our plate full with with the books and the movies so yeah i would say i and the two kids and the and the bartending and my god <laughs> it's a lot it is a lot yeah 
Well, I'm certainly uh, – I have a great admiration for all that you guys have been up to, and uh, I wish you continued success with, uh, with both the books and the movies. And uh, I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see the film. Thanks, Brad. I really appreciate that, man. I can't wait to show it to you. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Eric Obanoff of $2 Radio. You can find him online at $2radio.com. The Twitter handle is at $2 Radio. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. This show has its own app. Are you aware of that? It's a free app. It's it's the official app. You need that thing. You can get it wherever apps are available. You can download it to your device. And when you do that, uh, the last 50 episodes, the most recent 50 episodes, will be there waiting for you. It's that simple. It's the best, easiest way to listen. Uh, On top of that, it's also how you access the full archive. So if you're itching to listen to uh, some archive shows deep in the archives, you sign up for premium. It's It's a cheap subscription. costs like $2 a month. Or you can pay... $9 for a full year of access, or you can pay $5 for six months of access. You have options, and uh, when you do the math, it's a pittance. So uh, you get the app. The app is free. You you can sign up for premium, support the show, throw a couple dollars in the hat. So please do that. And uh, thanks for all the mail. I appreciate the... uh, I just heard something. I think something just fell. Anyway, thanks for all the mail. I appreciate it. I appreciate the uh, passion. And I don't mean, actually don't mean to uh, be farcical when I say that. I really do appreciate that people care enough about the show to criticize it. I appreciate that people care enough about the show to uh, defend the show. It sort of mystifies me, and it uh, makes me uh, happy at the same time. So if you want to email me, let me know what you're thinking. Tell me a story, whatever. The uh, address is letters at otherppl.com. You hear that? It's my daughter. <laughs> I think she just tried to come in and then I was recording and now she's upset. You see what happens? The sacrifices I make? A four-year-old is sobbing so that I can deliver you this episode. Please remember that Flannery O'Connor died of lupus and that Ruben Dario died of cirrhosis of the liver. Thanks again to Eric Obanoff. Go check out $2radio.com. They have a great catalog. Read some of those books. Get ready for some movies. They're blown up. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back again soon. I've got to go tend to my child. Can you hear that? Let me bring her in here. Let me see if I can get her on the air. <laughs> Hang on. Your knee? Okay, well, hang on a second. What's wrong, sweetie? Tell people what's wrong. Are you upset? I'm too upset to talk. She's too upset to talk. Is that all you have to say? Is that it? All right. (laughs) I'll see you guys later.